Hey guys and girls, welcome to another episode of Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Segal, and in today's episode, I'm going to be talking about the pharma and biotech supply chain with Andrew Moore, General Manager at Pfizer Center One. Now, for those regular listeners out there, you may remember that one of the first ever episodes we produced uh, was with a lady called Joyal, who was the previous GM at Pfizer Center One. So it's great to get their new leader, Andrew, on the show. And, and Andrew's a super experienced healthcare leader and entrepreneur. And he began his career in sales and marketing, uh, including seven years at Pfizer. He also held leadership roles at Baxter, Amerisource, Bergen, and McKesson. And most recently, Andrew was the CEO of an AI startup, Cogs Vision, before rejoining Pfizer about six months ago. And prior to his professional career, he served in the US Army, where he received multiple accolades, including the Bronze Star for his combat experience in Iraq for Desert Storm. This was one of the most interesting conversations that I've had the pleasure of having uh, on Molecule to Market. Andrew is just such a lovely, larger-than-life, likable guy, but his experience and his uh, background is really, really quite fascinating. Uh, listen to life you know, growing up in, in Mississippi uh, in in the sixties and seventies, and he talks about the emphasis on education that his parents uh, and grandparents, uh, you know, instilled in him at a time where it was still quite segregated in Mississippi. And, and Andrew, being from a black family, he talks about uh, you know the, his his first day at uh, nursery being integration day, which was which was a huge deal. Uh, at the time, and uh, Andrew goes on to talk about uh, the things he learned in being in the military for eight years and, and being shaped by the military. Uh, this is a brilliant story he talks about, uh, you know, uh, unmasking and going first, which you know, please listen out for. It's really quite fascinating. Um, and obviously, being at Pfizer over the the last year or so has been uh, an interesting time, given uh, everything that's been done with COVID and. Andrew talks about working alongside Albert Berla, the CEO at Pfizer, and watching him execute his vision and values and, and strategy, which is which is really interesting. And and finally, you know, it was it was really fascinating talking about very candidly Andrew talking about you know being uh, you know a black leader in the pharmaceutical and biotech sector and uh, the you know, the, the lack of representation at the most senior levels and, and the seriousness in which he takes his role and responsibility in, in driving diversity is, is really quite, uh, quite fascinating. And, you know, I applaud Andrew for his uh, candidness and openness. It's a, he's a real inspiration. So uh, I really enjoyed talking with Andrew and I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hey, Andrew, welcome to the show. Roman, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Absolute pleasure. No pressure, but when I interviewed uh, Joyelle, she was one of our first guests. She was pretty spectacular, Andrew. So you're gonna have to uh, you're gonna have to re- bring your A game today. Uh oh, here we go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Andrew. So obviously, you've got a very high profile, uh, you know, 
specific role at Pfizer Center One today. And, uh, you know, virtually, I think everyone listening to this podcast will know uh, who Pfizer are. But just for our listener, it'd be great to give a little bit of background on you and, uh, you know, how you ultimately ended up at Pfizer, where you went to college and some of your background story, especially for, for our listeners that have, have not come across you before. Sure, absolutely. Well, uh, I actually went to the University of Southern Mississippi on a track and field scholarship. And why there, I joined ROTC actually my junior year, uh, only to have uh, the Army on my resume. I never thought that I was going to be selected for active duty. But out of that process, I was selected for active duty and uh, wind up going in the Army uh, for uh, almost seven and a half years, eight years as a uh, officer. Uh, so after leaving the military, I joined Baxter Healthcare. Um, actually, I met the president of one of the international groups for Baxter while I was living in Germany. And uh, he and I started a relationship and he actually hired me into uh, Baxter. Uh, spent uh, about five years at Baxter, who spun off Allegiance Healthcare. From there, I worked for BD, Beckton Dickinson, uh, heading up the North American hypodermic business. And in the middle of all of that, uh, I managed to get an interview with Pfizer uh, to come in and do business development and worked on the Pharmacia acquisition and spent about seven and a half years at Pfizer. And from Pfizer, I worked for uh, the wholesale business, uh, Oprah Whit McKesson, uh, running uh, the Northeast uh, uh, pharmaceutical distribution business. And from there, I worked for Amerisource Bergen heading up the uh, U.S. hospital business. And uh, in the middle of that, I had the opportunity to work with Carnegie Mellon University uh, in their innovation center for artificial intelligence and machine learning uh, products. And out of that came a uh, opportunity to head up head a startup company uh, out of Carnegie Mellon focused on uh, all of their computer science, artificial intelligence and machine learning products uh, targeted at, at, at the healthcare industry. And as of last August, I had the opportunity to come back to Pfizer, heading up Pfizer Central One. I know that's a lot. I tried to go through it pretty quickly, <laughs> uh, you know, but uh, that's how I got to where I am today. So Great. And I, I have I have a ton of follow-up questions. Really quick one. What you, your um, scholarship at, at the South, Southern Mississippi University, was that a, what was your what was your event or your specialism in track and field? Were you a runner or something? Yes, I, I specialize in the 100 meters, the 200 meters, the long jump, and the four by 100 meter relay. Very good, very good. And tell me, how was life growing up in Mississippi in the 70s? Or I, I, <laughs> I you know, from, from the UK, you know, I've seen movies of, you know, the Deep South in, in that time of, of the world and just curious to know what, what it was like actually being there and, and living in, in that part of the world? You know, my oldest memories is actually being in kindergarten in Mississippi. And uh, at this point, we were still uh, segregated. Uh, so it was an all-Black kindergarten. And my first day of first grade was the first day of integration. Uh, so that's probably one of my most uh, uh, long-lasting memories, you know, is going to a school uh, in first grade and having that be the the day that they integrated the school, wow. that was an experience. That's amazing. I'm going to come back on the on the subject of uh, integration and equality and race. I'm going to 
I'm going to stick a pin in that and I'm going to come back and talk about that a little later. And you, you talked about your time in the army and, uh, you know, I, in my introduction, I mentioned, you know, you, uh, you, you managed to get a bronze star for your experience in, in Desert Storm. And uh, how, how was that experience and, you know, having, you know, giving such a long service uh, to the US military, that must have been uh, an incredible experience, very difficult, I suspect as well. And, and also, you know, I'm curious to know what, I suspect, leadership skills and organization skills and competences that you learned at that phase of your life are, are still relevant in, in what you do today. Interesting question. Um, you know, I, I would have to say the military is, is what made me who I am today. Uh, going in as a second lieutenant, uh, taking over a unit at 22, 23 years old, where you're the youngest person in the unit, but yet you're the leader of the unit. And uh, so having to go from, you know, college where everybody's your friend to in, into a situation where that decisions you make could cost lives. Uh, everything became very serious very quickly. Uh, so leadership is something that the military instills in its officers coming in uh, from day one. So you're you're somewhat prepared, but you're not really you don't have any real world experience. And uh, so thankfully, I was fortunate enough to have uh, some great uh, leaders around me and some great uh, sergeants that worked for me who uh, did a great job of uh, actually training me on, on leadership, you know, and helping me understand what it meant to be a leader in the Army. You know, and uh, uh, I'm just thankful that I was smart enough to listen and not one of those people who come in and think that, you know, just because you're in charge, you're in charge. Sometimes it's best just to sit back you know, let things kind of unfold, watch everything that's happening, take it in, learn from it, and let that be your lessons learned as you have to make more important decisions later on. So yeah, it was a great experience uh, understanding leadership, but more importantly, understanding culture and what drives culture. Um, those fundamental values that are instilled in you as a soldier and the, and the reliance on one another. So yeah, that was definitely the early foundation of me understanding leadership and understanding culture and how to drive culture and, and leadership within an organization to get a certain type of a result. It's interesting because I was going to ask you, I, you know, my, my research on you and, and having spoken to you before, you talk very passionately about culture and I was going to ask you where that comes from. So I suspect <laughs> you've just answered that question, which is really quite, quite fascinating. Is there, is there one, you mentioned listening, for example, is there one particular skill that you learned in your time in the army that, you know, has been, is fundamental to every, in all the roles that you have is fundamental to everywhere you go. It's kind of, uh, if you're like a pillar of, of who you are as a person. Yes, I would say it was probably in Desert Storm when uh, the M8 alarm goes off. That's your chemical alarm telling you there's chemicals in the air. The Iraqis had launched a Scud missile. And at that particular time in the military, the way that we determine it's all clear is you, you make a circle and you pick the least essential person and you put them in the center of the circle and they take their mask off. <laughs> As you can imagine, that's a lot of stress. Um, <laughs> So I called up one of the lower ranking people. He's actually my driver and I uh, say, okay, you know what time it is. Uh, so we have, to do, we have to do unmasking procedures. So now I want you to return back to the circle. And I put myself in the center of the circle and I did the unmasking procedure myself. 
And uh, the reason I did it was because it was one of those situations where that everyone is afraid. No one has done it before. And I couldn't see myself asking someone's son to step into a circle and take their mask off in what could possibly be a dangerous situation without knowing that I was willing to do it myself and I wanted them to see me do it. And I, and so that goes back to, you know, leading by example is the, is the phrase that people throw around daily. For me, it has a very different meaning. So I would say that's probably one of those things that still stick with me to this day. That's it. That's a really beautiful story and uh, of bravery and courage, courage and leadership. And I've written down unmask first, which I think, um, you know, it's a bit like, you know, I often say to, to my kids, you know, go first, be brave and go first and set the example. And it's a similar type of thing. But I think under those circumstances that are, you know, unimaginable to most of us, um, you know, it, it shows great bravery. Um, and well, thanks for sharing that story. And I'm sure people will be eyebrows raised and, uh, you know, shivers down their spine listening to, to that. And one thing when I, when I look to your background, Andrew, is you, you've got a really impressive educational record. You know, I believe you, you spent time at Boston University and you also had uh, some qualification from Harvard as well. Where did that, I suppose, desire for education or um, where did where did that come from? Is that something your parents instilled in you? Was it something that... Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's nothing in my family, there was nothing more important than education and continuing to educate yourself. And it doesn't matter where you get it from. The important thing is, is that you're continuously trying to improve and, you know, learn. Yeah, but that, that definitely comes from my uh, my parents and my uh, grandparents. They were, they were really, really big on enforcing education because they didn't have one. And I'm guessing it's the same for you with your children today. Uh, not as bad as my parents were, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's definitely important. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And I'm going to switch gears slightly and and talk about Pfizer because, I mean, I suppose the last year of being at Pfizer, given what's happened in the world, the profile of Pfizer uh, with obviously the COVID vaccine. um, And I believe that you obviously haven't spent a a big chunk of your career previously running uh, aspects of the business in, in Canada. My understanding is you actually worked and trained or spent some time alongside the chairman and CEO at, at Pfizer, Albert. Um, so, A, tell me if that my research is correct. <laughs> yes, Albert was uh, the, the head of Europe when I was uh, the head of Pfizer Canada. Yes, I, I know him uh, pretty well, I guess you could say. Take us inside to Pfizer, being part of Pfizer, albeit remotely for, for most, uh, most of your team, I imagine. Yeah. What has it been like from a sense of pride perspective, sense of you know belonging and togetherness as an organization? But also really interested to know, you know your view on, on how Albert has, has progressed in his career. And he's probably the most high, you know, the high prize profile pharmaceutical executive in the world right now. So, you know, if you could lift the lid and tell us what, what that's all like, that would be amazing for our, for our listeners. Well, you know, uh, after leaving the organization and watching him progress through the organization was something to see. It was, uh, uh, I always knew that he was uh, uh, very strategic, very, he was a visionary, uh, that he could solve problems in ways that uh, impressed me, even when he was in the animal health business. You know, so it was very interesting to watch him go through that process because part of it is 
you know, in my opinion, is that you can be good, but yet you also have to have the stars aligned for you as well. You know, and Albert had everything that a leader could possibly have. And to see what he's done with Pfizer now, particularly uh, with the values uh, and, 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 and the way he's reshaped the organization from a structural perspective, I've never seen anything like it before. I don't know anyone or any other company out there whose values are so succinct and the organizational structure supports uh, execution and strategy. So that's been amazing to watch. Amazing. And, and being in Pfizer as well in the last year, and how's that been in from a, I'm not going to say a celebratory perspective, because that's probably the wrong word to use, but from a, a pride perspective of the impact Pfizer has had or is having on, you know, billions of people all over the world right now. You know, it's, it's really interesting because uh, when I was with Pfizer prior, you know, Viagra was the big drug. So everybody knew the drug and they somewhat knew that Pfizer manufactured the drug. But now today going, you know, just going to the grocery store, going to the doctor's office, uh, just on the streets or playing golf and hearing people talk about the vaccine and mentioning the name Pfizer, uh, it, it, it really makes you feel proud, you know, to, to know that you would a company that uh, has done something spectacular in such a short amount of time and to be recognized, you know, in the general public by it. Not a whole lot of pharmaceuticals companies, uh, you know, can say that about their, uh, about their organization. So, yes, it's, I'm, I'm very proud to work for Pfizer. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I've always loved what Pfizer has stood for. Even in the 11 years that I've been away from the company, I always compared everything back to Pfizer. I know people probably got tired of hearing me say, well, at Pfizer, you know, we did it this way. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, when you're inside looking out, the grass may look green on the other side, but I'm here to tell you when it comes to Pfizer, uh, it was definitely greener on the Pfizer side. (laughs) (laughs) It's been interesting, actually. I mean, not by design, but we've interviewed quite a lot of uh, ex-Pfizer alumni who have spent you know 10 15 20 years at Pfizer and gone on to do something you know start their own business or create a you know be a a CEO elsewhere and um there's there's very rarely bad words said about it if that makes sense there's Mm -hmm. no one no one seems to stay there for you know six months for example people seem to have uh, big chunks of their career at Pfizer real make a real impact so it's quite fascinating even hearing you speak about the the the, the grass is greener <laughs> advisor is is really interesting given some of the other guests that we've had on as well and i want to talk about the stint that you had away from pfizer obviously you're back at pfizer now and uh, you had a chunk of time where you'd left and you, you did other things and in particular you you were part of a startup and a ceo at an a, a, an ai company and yeah i mean as a as a founder of my own business i know firsthand how exciting that is so Tell us about that experience and a spin out from a university. I'm guessing it was very different from uh, being in a, in a big multinational global organization like Pfizer. You know, it was something I've always wanted to try in my career. You know, I, I believe that life is about experiences. And as I look back over my career, I never looked at it and said, hey, I want this job or, you know, I want that job. I've always said I like to have this set of experiences in order to prepare me to do something bigger and, you know, and more grander. And one of the things I've always wanted to do was uh, be a CEO of a startup company. 
Uh, and the reason I wanted to do it is because it gives you the opportunity to really see how good you are at leadership. <laughs> uh, it, it, it tests you on every aspect of leadership and the ability to manage resources. Uh, so you have very, very little resources, lots of things to do. So you have to roll your sleeves up every day uh, uh, to do something uh, that's very different. It's never the same. So leaving a big organization and uh, taking a startup as a concept and develop even the, just a charter of the company was an experience. And to take that and put together a world-class leadership team over the next six months was uh, a lot of fun for me. You know, uh, we have some of the greatest minds in the artificial intelligence industry uh, as part of the organization. Now, part of that, I must say, is because it was a spin out of Carnegie Mellon where a lot of uh, AR technologies uh, originated, you know, because uh, Carnegie Mellon is probably the top two or three uh, AI schools in the United States, you know, along with Stanford and MIT. Uh, so being able to take that work with venture capital group angel investors and create something out of nothing and uh, have products that are uh, useful and very viable in the market was a great experience for me it was something i always wanted to do you're listening to molecule to market where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space the next follow-up question is so why the drawback to Pfizer and uh, and in particular Pfizer Center One and you know I think it's been is it six or nine maybe six months since you've joined mm-hmm. the business? Um, what was it that made you want to come back to Pfizer and in particular Pfizer Center One? What excited you about the opportunity? Sure. Well, in my entrepreneurial world, my uh, what I set out to do there was done. Now it was moving back to the R&D phase and I'm not really an R&D person. So they, I felt the organization needed a CEO who is more into the development and bringing up a product from concept to pilot program to launch. And that's not what I really wanted to do. And when I was uh, talking to ex-colleagues at Pfizer, there was an opportunity uh, uh, for Pfizer Center One uh, I took a look at it and said, wow, this is a very interesting p and I've never seen one like it before, where that you have access to uh, all of Pfizer's uh, resources uh, from a manufacturing development perspective, and you're able to help smaller companies uh, take their products from development to commercialization or through manufacturing. I just saw so much potential in an in a embedded CDMO uh, that I had to take a look at it. And once I saw what it was, I was like, this would be a great experience. And, did and you, so uh, I accepted sorry, the opportunity. Sorry to interrupt, Andrew. And did you know much about Pfizer Center One prior to, to you know being offered the role? And it, was it something you knew in your previous role at Pfizer or was it relatively new to your kind of understanding? Didn't even know it existed. <laughs> Never heard of it. Didn't know... I knew what contract manufacturing was to a to a very 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 small degree, but you know, quite honestly, I knew nothing about the industry or the market. But that's again, that's one of the things that made it exciting to me. It's an opportunity to learn something new. And I'm guessing your entrepreneurial experience and your ability to to build management teams and shape culture was probably important because it it feels like a a a, a 
not a small CDMO because I know it's a large CDMO business, but within a, a huge, large business. So you almost have that sense of ownership as if it's a, uh, you know, a small part of a, a bigger, a bigger animal. And what, what has the first six months been like there in terms of your learning curve for this sector? And is it what you thought it would be? Is there any misconceptions or anything like that? It's bigger than I thought. And I've been really surprised at how receptive the organization has been to change, mm-hmm. uh, uh, particularly with someone like me who's very entrepreneurial. Uh, and the way that I've come in with my team and we have redefined our vision, we have restructured our strategy, and now we are aligning the organization uh, for long-term sustainable growth. Uh, so yes, it's, 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 it's been very interesting to see how the organization is the same, but yet uh, it still allows you as a leader uh, to be entrepreneurial, you know, to take some risk. You know, uh, I would say that's probably been the biggest, the biggest surprise. I would have thought that it would have taken longer mm-hmm. to bring about, you know, the, the changes that we've made in six months. And, and if I understood correctly, Andrew, some of the sites that Pfizer Center One has access to to support its clients, mm-hmm. some of those sites have actually been uh, some of the sites that have supported the COVID uh, manufacturing and distribution yes. as well. If, if that's correct, in particular, I think the Kalamazoo, Kalamazoo site in in uh, you know in the US, which is been very well covered on the media, uh, you know, even in Boston where I am, it's been it's had it's had incredible coverage and. Is that is that a big part? Has that been has that added complexity to your role, or is it is it just uh, you know been another part of that the the narrative of Pfizer of, for this year? You know that, that's just part of normal business processes. Things happen. You know, question is how long? You know, is it long term sustainable or is it a short term fix? You know, and and right now with COVID, no one really knows exactly where this is going to end up, but we do know that there is a need for vaccine. There will be a continued need for vaccine. And it's given us the opportunity to look at the network and make whatever adjustments needed to be uh, that need to be made. The way that I look at it is, it creates an opportunity. You know, uh, uh, are there opportunities to do other things alongside of COVID? Are there adjacent spaces that we should be looking at and playing in? So for me, it just kind of opened up a whole new uh, can of worms as it relates to opportunities and uh, where do we want to take more risk? Mm, very interesting. Yeah, it's it's funny because you're although you've spent a lot of time at Pfizer and obviously you're there now, you're, you come across as a f- entrepreneurial founder. I don't know if you've been told that before, <laughs> but uh, you, you, like the, the language you use, the passion, et cetera, et cetera. It's really quite, quite fascinating. And one, one subject I wanted to talk to you about is, is diversity in the sector. And we, we had a, a guest on earlier this year or the back end of last year, a lady called Tia uh, Lyles Williams and, Tia spoke very openly about the the lack of uh, you know black representation at the higher levels of the sector in in pharmaceutical and biotech. So mm-hmm. you know, given given your role at Pfizer Center One, you're in a very very uh, senior, well respected, regarded role. I, I'm really interested to get your take on how things have changed in the last 20, 30 years. If anything has changed at all from your perspective, because I look at someone in your position and I think you know you. you you're an inspiration for many people because of the position that you're in. But 
it's easy to look at you through those eyes without knowing what it's like being you know, in your shoes, so to speak. So, so mm-hmm. what change have you seen in the last couple of decades, if any, but, and also, you know, where do you fit now on the spectrum in terms of, you know, do you see yourself as an inspiration to help you know, more black leaders get into the sector and grow within businesses like Pfizer? Wow. That's a good question. Sorry, sorry. I probably was the longest question ever. And it... <laughs> yeah, really uh, well, first, I'll say this. Uh, early on in my career, even when I was like, you know, uh, heading up Pfizer Animal Health in Canada and other senior level uh, like positions, I always knew that I was the only black person uh, in the room 99.9% of the time. <laughs> but I never really thought about it in terms of diversity. Mm-hmm. I always looked at it and said, uh, you know, am I qualified for the opportunity? And are others qualified for the opportunity? And I would say, okay, I'm here. You know, why aren't there others here? So that, that was always a question, but it, 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 it never gelled as to why. You know what I mean? It, it was just the way that it was. And I looked at it, you know, from Andrew's perspective and said, I'm going to do the best that I can do. I'm going to make, I'm going to ensure that I am a valued employee, that I've done uh, all the right things. I've checked all the right boxes and I'm going to be the best leader that I can be and, you know, see what happens. Has it changed over the last 20 years? Here's the biggest change, in my opinion, uh, is awareness. Today, you have more senior executives talking about diversity and in the history of corporate America. Mm-hmm. Um, and before it was, uh, you know, let's put together this group to evaluate diversity. And now it's like senior leaders today are saying, okay, let's, let's find out how to make it actionable and not just a conversation. So in 20 years, I would say it's gone from being a conversation to figuring out how to act on it and what actions do we take to improve our numbers from a diversity perspective. So I would say that's probably the biggest change. I mean, specific to the pharmaceutical and and biotech sector that we operate in, why why do you think that is, Andrew, in terms of um, the representation, uh, you know, at at the most senior levels? Is it just the opportunity, access to education, access to growth within all? I'm sure there are lots of, you know, socioeconomic factors as well. I think first there's just very few positions. Mm-hmm. And secondly, to be quite candid about it, is people have a tendency to hire people they're comfortable with. Mm. You know, so if you're not in those social circles or you don't have opportunity to uh, uh, develop relationships at the most senior levels of, of an organization and uh, have strong uh, mentor programs, but even more importantly, sponsorship. If you don't have sponsors, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's, it's very difficult because people have a tendency to hire who they like, you know, and, and the people that they know. So, it's, you know, there, there's a lot of factors playing into those decisions. And do you feel any sense of responsibility or anything or, you, you know, in terms of the position that you have now in terms of, you know, we've had, for example, female leaders on that or in very senior roles as females and they shoulder a bit of responsibility to, you know, to act a certain way. And, you know, because they are, you know, uh, lighting the way for other female leaders. Do you, do you ever feel that sense of responsibility or pressure or anything like that? Or, you know, 
the way I look at someone like you, Andrew, is actually you're in a, a great role to make a difference and inspire others. Do you do you even ever think about things like that? <laughs> you know, honestly, I think about me as a leader. I take leadership very serious. I mean, it's it's the way I grew up. Uh, you know, as a soldier, you know, to me, there's nothing more important than leadership. Uh, secondly, I'm a black leader. So that's important to me as well, because there are very few of me, you know, in the, in, in the industry that I'm in today. So I, I take that very seriously. So I, I feel a tremendous amount of, uh, I wouldn't call it pressure, but I, I would say um, I have a strong commitment uh, to ensuring that uh, diversity is considered uh, within the hiring process. And, you know, in organizations that I've been in before, I mean, I, I felt the same way about veterans, you know, uh, because diversity is the lifeblood of an organization. If you don't look like the communities that you're representing, how can you expect to be highly successful within those communities? Uh, the United States is a very diverse country, and our organizations should be reflective of the communities that we serve. And I'm I'm very passionate about that. Oh, I love that. I think it's a really inspirational statement there around the diversity, especially here in the U.S. And you know, I want to thank you for your candidness because it's not an easy subject to actually talk about. But I love the the passion at which you um, you shoulder your uh, kind of. Not, not responsibility, but, you know, the, the sense of taking things uh, very, very seriously. So I'm going to do a full 360 and or, or 180 even and talk about some a lot lighter subject, Andrew. <laughs> so a birdie tells me that you are a real fan of fine wine and cigars. Is is that true? And uh, we've, had a, that, we've had a few. That would be a true statement. <laughs> so where, where is this um, love of fine wine and, and cigars come from? The wine started when I was in the military and I was stationed in Europe. Uh, I was in Germany and uh, a real good friend of mine was stationed in uh, France. And uh, I went to my first wine tasting and just fell in love with French Bordeaux wines. Uh, I mean, I had no idea wine could taste like that. Uh, <laughs> before that, I was a beer drinker. And that night I actually fell in love with wine at a wine tasting and I've been collecting ever since. Amazing. Amazing. And cigars. Tell me about your cigars. Cigars is a military thing. All military officers smoke cigars. <laughs> you know, if you're a ground soldier, you know, the one thing you can find in a ground soldier's pocket, the officers at least, is a, a good a good cigar. And uh, although the Cuban cigars were the coveted cigars, we always kind of kept those under wraps. But in, uh, you know, big parties and, you know, big celebrations, we always managed to get our hands on a few. Love it. And I, so I kind of fell in love with cigars back then. So now I, I actually collect them both. Oh, very good. Very good. This is this is this this is a key reason to become a friend of yours, Andrew, you realized uh, for this wine selection and cigar selection. <laughs> and when you uh, I love the, the wine thing I've been doing for over 30 years. So I, I go back quite a ways in the old vintage Bardos. <laughs> we should do Burgundy. We should do a part two down the line where we, if we, when we meet in person at some point and spend some time together, we'll, we'll do it over wine and cigars. And it's funny when you said the military there and cigars, I just had like Hannibal from the A-team uh, from the 80s pop into my mind. <laughs> and we've, we've talked, we've talked a lot about, leadership and your passion as a leader and you know obviously you talk very openly about uh 
the seriousness in which you take you being a, a, as a as a black leader in an organization which i think is really inspiration and, and and great and what what are you not very good at andrew so what what is it that you have to work at because people often look at leaders like yourself who've had you know really fantastic careers and you know in in roles of uh, you know very coveted roles but don't necessarily see the you know behind the closed do- doors work that you have to do to kind of craft your own skill and get better are there any particular things that you constantly work on uh, to kind of improve yourself yes oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, the big thing for me is patience uh, I'm, I'm, I, I get very excited. I like working on projects that are fun. And when I get excited, my patience grows, you know, my, my, my tolerance for not progressing something grows very thin pretty quickly. So I work hard on patience. Uh, I would probably say the second thing I probably work a, a, a lot on is communication. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does that mean? I'm, that, that really means style. You know, you try to have a neutral style as possible because you're dealing with so many different people from so many different backgrounds and so many different cultures. So the way in which you talk to people uh, has to be as neutral as possible. So, you know, it goes back to knowing your audience. Mm-hmm. You know, so, uh, yeah, so I would say communication and patience are the two things that I, I continuously trying to improve on see i mean for our listeners he's not perfect nobody's perfect this is <laughs> this is important to get across and and andrew if you could go back and give your uh, or some advice to your 25 year old self what what would you say to him <laughs> become an investment banker make a lot of money <laughs> and, then start, and then become a philanthropist <laughs> the rest of this is just way too hard <laughs> and how how would your best friend or maybe your wife how would your wife describe you in in three words in three words puts others first very good they my yeah my people who are close to me always say i'm 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 selfless mm-hmm. that i'm i'm always thinking about others first if i'm at a party i'm trying to make sure that everybody's having a good time you know uh that's just you know part of my personality i'm I, I'm, I'm really concerned about uh, others. That's great. Where does that, is that, is that again, something from your parents and your grandparents that you mentioned earlier on? Is that- I think it's a Southern thing. I think it's a Southern US thing. I think it's a Mississippi thing. You know, we, we're, we're called Mississippi is the hospitality state, mm. you know, and uh, hospitality. If someone, I grew up in a house where someone comes to your house to eat, you give them your last. If you, if that's all that left, you give it away before you eat it yourself. No, that's great. You know, great. you know, that's just the way I grew up. You know, you, you always put others first. Very good. And I, it, it's a great leadership trait as well, obviously. And, and, and some of the experience and you've obviously shown that through your career as well. And we've got another five minutes left or so, Andrew, I know you're very, very busy man so i wanted to just talk about the sector and the contract services and in particular the, the cdmo space that you operate in and what what are the main main trends that you're seeing right now or any real changes that you're seeing in the sector and uh, and also you know what impact has covid had uh, in terms of accelerating any trends or uh, you know making your job harder or easier just any any 
and I believe um, Pfizer Center One is you know one of the biggest CDMOs in the world right now. So I'm sure people are very interested in in your views on you know how you guys see the sector. You know, I see the sector is now uh, being led by small uh, entrepreneurial organizations in the R and D space. Uh, you know, the startup uh, companies who are out there who are backed by venture capital or equity firms who are putting everything forward to develop new drugs, uh, you know, like a BioNTech, you know, like who heard of BioNTech until the mRNA, you know, mm-hmm. uh, there are lots of, uh, I think, the, I think globally, the last numbers I saw were like 6,000 startup biotech companies globally uh, and biopharmaceuticals. Uh, so the trend is actually uh, in that R&D, that, that, that innovative space. And I think that lends well to what we're trying to do. And that's uh, get involved earlier in the product life cycle from a CDMO perspective. I think that's a trend that will continue. Mm-hmm. And the second part of your question was? Well, co- was was COVID, but I'll, I'll do a quick pause there because I was going to ask you on that point about R&D companies is what's the, I mean, in my mind, there would be presumably quite a lot of excitement to have an, an organization like Pfizer support a small R&D company, like a biotech company. Is that is that a fair assumption or, or you know, it, it, of what you're seeing where companies are excited to potentially have, uh, you know, Pfizer Center One support them in, you know, in that product life cycle and getting them through development to clinical trials? Is, is that something you're seeing as well? I think it's a mixed bag. I think initially, mm-hmm. just by just by the nature of being entrepreneurial, you are afraid of the big bad company, you know, and Pfizer's a big company, <laughs> you know, and, and, and it is for a number of reasons. Probably the biggest reason is that we're difficult to navigate. You know, uh, it's difficult to uh, be a priority, you know, and that's where I think a Pfizer Center One comes into play. You know, we are a startup company, in my opinion, because we're only about 60 people strong, you know, in this big, massive company called Pfizer. So it's our job to navigate uh, the Pfizer for these smaller uh, companies, but we have to get that word out. This is a new strategy for us. This is uh, a new platform. I think uh, uh, COVID has made this, uh, th- th- has brought this opportunity to greater lights within the organization as well. You know, cause one of the things that we've been doing is trying to help other uh, companies uh, with COVID opportunities. You know, so I think that this gives us a great jump off moving forward as we start to engage uh, with these uh, smaller entities that are looking for, you know, development help, manufacturing help, and possibly commercialization. As long as they are looking to do things virtually, I think we'll be a good fit. Mm, yeah, no, I, I can see that definitely. And it goes back to some of the things we talked about right at the start, Andrew, about, you know, the profile of Pfizer is, uh, you know, and I think in particular the pace at which Pfizer has been able to bring a drug product to market has, you know, been phenomenal and raised eyebrows all over the sector. And I'm guessing that is something, a, a, you know, a well-funded startup biotech company might be excited by the prospect of accessing uh, the expertise and facilities within Pfizer through Pfizer Center One in, in order to to meet their goals, presumably as well. That's that's what I'm thinking as well. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, it's been a genuine pleasure to have you on Molecule to Market, and you know you've you've not 
you, you've done yourself proud in terms of, uh, you know, the Joyelle standard that she set uh, <laughs> this time last year. So thank you for making the time and, you know, particularly for talking so candidly about some yeah, you know, very sensitive subjects, but also, uh, in my mind, you know, inspiring lots of people to think big. And you talked about learning and education, which I think are really important aspects to, to career and life success. And, and, you know, I love the fact that you've moved around in your career and you've you've taken risks. Uh, you know, the entrepreneurial startup thing is so unusual for someone in a position like you. Um, yeah, you I'm, I'm, and, you know, I'm sure you mentioned your parents at the start. I'm, I'm sure your family, you know, are very proud of, of what what you've achieved in your career is and in, in your life. Is that is that a fair a fair assumption? You know, to be quite honest about it, my parents really don't fully understand what I do, but <laughs> what they are proud of is that uh, uh, I work for the company who has the vaccine. They love that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we'll, we'll make sure you send them, uh, you know, a link to the podcast when, uh, you know, when it's live. And uh, it's it's been quite interesting that this this type of format where you hear almost the life story of a guest like yourself and the impact that you're making on a business and your colleagues in the world is actually quite powerful for family members and things like that. So, uh, I'm, well, I'm sure they are very proud of you because you've, you've achieved, you know, a lot of things in your career and life. And, uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, thanks so much for, for being on the show and for making the time, Andrew. No, thanks for having me. It's been fun. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Stay safe. Okay. You too. Bye-bye. Hi again, thanks so much for tuning in to Molecule to Market. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find more shows on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you'd like to listen. Get in touch with us on our website, moleculetomarketpod.com, and follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter, and we will see you again next week. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile and generate leads in life sciences.